0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend in the three-year lectionary marks the 10th Sunday after the day of Pentecost. Our Old Testament reading will be from Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 15, the epistle from Paul's letter to Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, and the gospel. We're taking a bit of a hiatus from Mark, and we're headed over to John, chapter six, verses 22 to 35. All right, so we'll begin with the Exodus text. And this is one, chapter 16, verse 2 through 15. This is one that has a special place in my own family, um, as this is where our oldest daughter gets her name from. Uh, So we'll unpack that a little bit as we wander through this one. Speaking of wandering, this is pretty much happening right at the very beginning of the wilderness wandering. It's only just begun. You know um, that the wilderness wandering lasted for 40 years. Well, here they are on the 15th day of the second month. Verse 1 would have covered that. I'm not sure why we didn't start with verse 1, but we don't. So, there's your context. The Israelites are Already in the wilderness, they have crossed the Red Sea. And they're wandering around the Sinai Peninsula. And we get our text. So we're going to take a paragraph at a time. This one's broken across four paragraphs, so verses 2 and 3 to start. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Notice no one is exempted from this. The whole congregation of the people of Israel. So all two something million of them. We don't have exact head counts um, for all of the people. We know the men were numbered at around 600,000 according to Exodus chapter Twelve verse thirty-seven. That doesn't count women and children. So if you consider that most Jewish men, most Israelite men, would have been married and had you know a wife, if we're just going with one, that would roughly double that number. And then they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So if they, each family, each household has children, that number is going to go up significantly as well. Um, So we don't know how many Israelites precisely left the the land of Egypt to go on this journey into the promised land, but it could have easily been two million. And so this entire congregation, the entire assembly, is guilty for grumbling against Moses and Aaron, and by default then also against God himself. And so what's the grumble? What's the complaint? And would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, so they'd rather be dead right now, where they had meat pots and bread to the full, then die of hunger in the wilderness. So their their complaint, their accusation here is that they don't have food. So this is automatically already a rejection of Yahweh. This is a rebellion against God as not providing for them well enough for whatever they have in their mind. Now, Do you think there's any truth to what they said? That they sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full while they were slaves in Egypt? Probably not. It's probably the grass is always greener kind of a situation where they're looking back and they're glorifying the old days, making them better than they actually were, because it it beats what they've got now in their mind. So, they are accusing God, through his servants, of attempting to kill them all by starving them. Verse 4, God responds, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. So God responds to their complaint of hunger. Not with anger or judgment, but with a test. A test that will show that God is patient to deal with this situation, but also merciful in providing for them, even though they have just made such a false accusation against him. So what's he going to do? Well, first, he's going to rain bread from heaven. That'd be quite a sight to behold. Now, you'll notice as we go through things that this is easily paired up with our gospel text uh, from John, where Jesus is that bread from heaven. So we'll get to talk about that here in a little bit. And it's no coincidence that that text follows pretty quickly on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. But again, we'll come back to that. So, God is going to test them. Here it is. They're going to get this bread every day, and each person is to go out and gather bread every day, except on the Sabbath day, they are not to gather there won't be any bread out there on the sabbath day they're instead to gather twice as much on day six and prepare twice as much on day six so that they are ready for the sabbath rest so what is the the test here well god himself phrases it this way whether they will walk in my law or not he's testing to see if if they will trust him and i know we often don't think about it this way but that is what the sabbath day is The Sabbath day, Sabbath being Hebrew for stop, cease, or desist. So the Sabbath day is a day of rest. The purpose of the Sabbath day is is both the physical rest that is good for us as people. God knows his creation. But it's it's also the test to see if we will trust in the Lord. Do we believe that the God who created this world in just six days, simply by speaking, can continue to uphold this world if we take a day off once a week? Do we believe that? Or do we think that we have to work, 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 and that if we were to try and slow down, things would fall apart? How many of us believe that? There's the challenge, right? a big challenge and the Israelites fail at this miserably. We don't get that in the text today. We stop short of seeing what Israel actually does, nor do we pick up on that anytime soon. So just the heads up, they're not gonna listen. They're gonna try and hoard some of the food overnight and it goes bad because they don't trust that God will give it to them again the next day. And then on day seven, well day six, Many of them don't gather enough for day seven because they don't trust. They don't believe the word of God. And so when day seven comes, they don't have food. Failures on both sides of that part of this process. And so Moses and Aaron show this to the people. They share God's word with them. In the evening, you will know. And in the morning, you will know. The glory of Yahweh, you will know that it was Yahweh that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, really, should there be any doubt at this point that it was Yahweh that did so? We don't know exactly how long um, the, the ten plagues time of Moses played out, whether it was a few months or perhaps a year or so. The timeline is not really provided to us, not an important detail. For the account. And so here they have seen within the last year, maybe shorter, the Lord provide all of these miracles. They have seen him rescue them from Egypt. They have even watched God part the Red Sea and drown the Egyptian army. The world's greatest power at the time decimated And they still need proof? The hearts are hard, not just of Pharaoh, but of God's own people. God heard their grumbling, and he's going to respond. Moses rightly points out here twice in this paragraph that it's not really him and Aaron that they are grumbling against. Moses and Aaron are just servants after all. When you have a problem With the servant, you really have a problem with the master. That's still true as you think of a company. Um, When things go wrong with an employee, the employer or the manager is held responsible for such things. God is responsible for whether or not these people are provided for. So God is going to give them meat to eat in the evening and bread to eat in the morning... That brings us to verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So here's the repetition, saying what God has said, inviting the congregation to see, to see the glory of God, of Yahweh. They've already been seeing it, right? They've seen the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and now they are seeing God appear, Yahweh appear in the cloud again, out over the wilderness. God speaks to Moses twilight you shall eat meat so when the sun goes down and in the morning you shall be filled with bread these two things these two gifts from god show that he is yahweh that he is who he says he is he is the god of israel he is their caretaker their provider their savior their everything now they should already know this but how quickly they have forgotten Lastly, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. Now you can read more about the quail in Numbers chapter 11, although that does appear to be a bit of a different account than this one was. Um, that comes on the heels of them leaving Sinai, where here they're still on their way to Mount Sinai. Either way, um, they, they fail with the quail too, but you can see that again, Numbers chapter 11. So for now, we're just going to primarily focus on the manna, but first we do have the note, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp. So they got meat to eat. They, you know They complained about not having the meat pots anymore, So God gave them quail. In the morning, this is what we have a little more time spent on in the book of Exodus, dew lay on the ground of the camp. So you're familiar with dew. You see it on those spring days, those days where it cools off at night and it warms up during the day. But sometimes there is a moisture on the ground in the mornings. You walk through your grass, your shoes get all wet. Well, here it is for them, except when that dew dries up, it leaves behind manna, a a bread, a flake-like bread. Real fine, as you see, fine as frost on the ground, so they have to gather it. When the people of israel saw it they said to one another what is it that is in hebrew manna manna. so that name sticks for the rest of israel's history and even up to the present day it is called manna it is called what is it because they don't know so moses has to share with them what it is it is the bread that yahweh has given you to eat he made a promise He keeps his promise. Now, again, they don't do well with this. And I also mentioned that this is a text of special importance to my family, um, that my daughter's name comes from this one. So let me share that with you briefly. Um, Our oldest daughter is named Talia Faith. Uh, So Talia, T-A-L-I-A. That is the name that comes out of this text, although you don't really see it here in English, like you do some Hebrew names. Instead, tal, T-A-L, is the Hebrew word do, for do. And so this do that's on the ground in the morning is tal. And then ya, when added to a name, is the divine name, such as in names like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Those names have it too. And so talia, as a name, means do of Yahweh. And then faith, Uh, comes out of the Latin language originally and and means, uh, from fides, means trust. And so we have hoped, by naming our daughter what we did, that she would trust that the Lord will always provide for her, coming out of this text. We know it's a promise that the Lord has made. First article, as we talk about, about the Apostles' Creed, first article gifts of the Lord that he provides for his people and while that may not look like what we want it to, in the long run, he has provided for us even the salvation, even the resurrection from the dead. And so we rejoice. And it is our hope that our daughter will many times in her life have the opportunity to, to remember that very good promise of the Lord to us and also share that promise with others as they wonder what her name means. As we move into part two of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter four, verses one through 16, it really has that feel to it, right? As we saw last week at the end of the chapter, the third chapter, Paul gives a good doxology. I mean, the way he wraps up chapter three could easily have been the wrapping up of the letter, but instead he's just about halfway through. And so really it feels like a part two, a continuation of what he had said before. So we've got 16 verses in Ephesians today, and we're going to look at verses one through eight together to start. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's our first part of the text today. And so it begins with Paul acknowledging his status, his standing before the Lord. He is a prisoner. That's not a word that we would probably like to use when we think of our our faith, of our savior, of our God. But it is scriptural language and it's not alone. Scripture will also go on to refer to us as slaves of Christ, slaves to God. And that really, it does fight against our pride. It fights against our American ideals of freedom and liberty. We're not here to live for ourselves. We're not here to do ever what we want to do. We are servants. We were in the garden in the very beginning. We were created to be servants. We were created to be caretakers, stewards of God's creation. And even now, this continues to be true. We are not here for ourselves. We are not here to just eat, drink, and be merry. Although, you know, enjoying God's creation is okay. It's a good thing to enjoy what God has given. But it's more than that. We are here to love one another, to serve one another, and that applies both inside the church and also outside the church. So that's what Paul is going to hint at with that single word, prisoner, there. Now, he is a prisoner in chains, also physically, as preaching the gospel gets him in trouble more than once. So he's a prisoner because he's been sharing the word of God, sharing the good news. So Paul urges the Christian church, he urges those in Ephesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they are called. Now that calling is by God, Christian. Child of God. His. So walk in a manner worthy of that. Walk in a manner worthy of your baptism. Walk in a manner worthy of being called a little Jesus, a little Christ, which is what the word Christian means. Well, what does that look like? Well, humble. We we're just talking about opposing our pride a little bit ago. That's something needful in our society, that we would oppose our own pride. This is not about me. I'm not here for me. You got the great Philippians two section that Jesus humbled himself, his state of humiliation as we sometimes talk about it. He was willing to think not of himself or his own needs, but rather to lay down his life for his friends. Gentleness as well. We are called by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 to be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in us, but to do it with gentleness and respect you're probably not gonna win over people for the gospel by screaming at them, but by being gentle, by showing them the love of Christ that he has for them, even in their rebellion. Patience is another one. That's a tough one. It's one of those things that as a dad and as a husband, You need a lot of patience for marriage to go well. And one of the greatest ways that God teaches you patience is by the gift of children. <laughs> they test your patience all the time, and they push those buttons, then they really work you. And so your, your patience grows. And as your patience grows, you can actually be a better husband or a better wife to your spouse because you can now be more patient with them, more forgiving with them, because you've learned how to forgive and be patient with your kids. Bear with one another in love. This is inside the body, right? Don't mistake that. We are talking about the church, and so we're not talking about bearing with one another, as in all people in the world but a good portion of them, right? The Christian church, roughly two billion people. That's a lot of people to bear with, but we are to bear one another's burdens. And we are also to bear with one another's sinfulness. So my brother sins against me, and I show him patience, I show him gentleness and I restore him gently to Christ. I sin against my brother, and he does the same thing for me. Verse 3, this gets to the next thing. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are one body. Do we look like it? Just how many Christian denominations are there? Do we look like one body? Is there a... A way by which, even though we have our disagreements now, that we could start conversations and try to move towards reconciling, is there a way that we can pray that the Lord would have his hand in that process and bring about reconciliation among his people? The bond of peace. We saw that again stressed, emphasized last week in chapter 3. So verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. And really that continues with verse five as well. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. Catching on yet? There's not a Christian church here and a Christian church over there and a Christian church in that place. We are one body. And what body? Well, The body of Christ himself. One body, one spirit. The Holy Spirit is not multiple people. And so when the Holy Spirit calls you to be part of his family, he calls you to be part of his family. You're in. That's it. And now, while in, we pray and we fight for that bond of peace again. We have one hope. The hope of the Baptist is not any different than the hope of the Lutheran. We wanna be in paradise. We wanna be with Christ forevermore. That hope. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I know there's a lot of disagreement in the church today about baptism. Do we baptize infants or not baptize them? Do we baptize by sprinkling water or by completely dunking a person underwater? There are differences, and those differences do matter. Again, we need to talk about them. We need to study the Word of God together and pray that the Lord would bring reconciliation. But in the meantime, there is only one baptism. That is why, as, as Lutherans, when somebody from another Christian congregation comes to our church, we don't require them to be rebaptized. We don't put any stock in that. They are baptized into Christ, they're His already. One God, one Father of all. He's over all, through all, in all. So over, he's above, he has the higher position, he has the higher rank. He provides for all people. He is through all. So he works through us for the good of his kingdom. He works through the body of Christ to care for his creation. And in all, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that we can be called children of God verse 7 grace was given to each of us according to the measure of christ's gift so it is the lord who decides how to apportion his gifts to his people whether he gives you a little or a lot whether he gives you something easy or something difficult that is his decision to make and he has made it for you and then verse 8 is a citation from psalm 68 verse 18 when he ascended on high, Jesus ascended into heaven on the day of ascension, 40 days after Easter, he led a host of captives, be sinners like you and me were now his, and he gave gifts to men. So again, Psalm 68 verse 18 covers uh, this. What are these gifts that Christ gives to Men, what are these gifts that Christ gives to us sinners who are now his as he takes us to be with himself? Well, gifts of forgiveness and life, salvation. And, in keeping with the context here, Paul is going to take this a different direction. That God has given different groups of people within the church in order to be of benefit to them. And these are different Gifts. Verse 9 is set apart in parentheses in our ESV Bibles as an indication that it doesn't necessarily follow the same train of thought, kind of a side note. So, let's go ahead and read the rest of the text, including starting out with this side note here in verse 9, all the way through verse 16. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for every work of ministry for building up the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ So here's your side note. Jesus ascended. Paul says if he ascended, in order to have done that, he had to first descend. Now, you'll hear sometimes this is a reference to the descent into hell. Grammatically speaking, I don't see any necessity of that. First Peter chapter 3 would be the other one that we tend to use to talk about that, that text within the Apostles' Creed. Instead here, I think we would take this verse as being a reference to the de- to the descent that is connected with the Incarnation, that Jesus Christ came down into this world. He descended from heaven to earth and became a man in order that he might fill all things. So Jesus ascended into heaven as the final fulfillment of who he is as our God, That's one way to think about it. I guess he might fill all things, but would also be possibly a reference to the fact that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into creation, and it is the Holy Spirit who then works to fill us with his word and with his sacraments. So then we see Jesus has given to the church different people, different functions, different tasks. And so we have apostles. There aren't many of those, right? The apostles are, you've got the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Matthias. So you're back to 12. And then you've got Paul. We see Barnabas also, for example, named an apostle. An apostle is someone who has seen the risen Christ and been directly commissioned by him to do the work. There aren't many of those. It's a special group of men that the Lord has given to his church. Very bold, very much so taking the gospel wherever they had the opportunity uh, most of them dying for what they believed so apostles prophets a prophet is anyone who speaks the word of god Um, the old testament prophets did that it was often combined with getting to see the future but that was again just saying what god gave them to say god doesn't necessarily work the same way anymore but he has given us his word and we are prophets when we speak his word to one another Or to anyone, for that matter. Evangelist comes from the Greek word euangelizomai, which is to share the good news. So an evangelist is someone who shares the good news. So we have evangelists in the church who are really good at sharing the good news. I once knew a man in my days of living in Minnesota, a Christian brother, And the way people described him to me was that you could put him in front of a wall and he could evangelize the wall. He was just, he loved talking about Jesus. He loved sharing the gospel with others. That's a gift. It's a good thing. Shepherds. A shepherd cares for the sheep. This is what Jesus tells Peter to do, right? In John's gospel as he basically recommissions him. After Peter's threefold denial, feed my sheep, tend my flock. Shepherds care for the sheep. So these are most likened to our pastors today in the church who care for the congregation. Seek to give it good food, which is word and sacrament, and also to protect it from enemy attack. It's the devil and our own sinful flesh and the world around us are fighting against us each and every day. Then also teachers, people who are skilled in, in teaching God's word so that others may hear it and understand it. So God has given these different men to the church for the purpose of, verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So that's all of us. We have these specific people equipping us so that we are ready to go out and share the gospel too. It's not just your pastor's job. It's everybody's. We get to do it in our vocations. We get to share Christ with the people that we know, whoever those people might be. So we're each equipped to share the gospel and also for building up the body of Christ. So we encourage one another each and every day so that we may be that body together. You know, the, the body takes care of the other parts of the body. When the mouth chews food, it does so for the good of the rest of the body. When the eye sees imposing disaster, it does so for the good of the rest of the body. And so we do too, together, as God's people, we share in this faith and in this life, encouraging one another by the gifts that the Lord gives. Verse 13 honestly strikes me as paradise until we attain the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son, mature manhood, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, yeah. Unity? Unity is far off. That doesn't mean we don't pray for it. It doesn't mean we don't fight for it. Mature manhood? Eh, Questionable, right? No, the... The idea of manhood is is seen best in Christ himself. And so we learn to be like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in maturity, rather than kind of as infants. The fullness of Christ. Well, we will have that certainly in paradise. 14 would, would push back against that and suggest we need to be doing these things now. Why? Because... The goal is that we would no longer be like children who are tossed to and fro. You picture a little kid trying to stand in the waves, and the waves just keep knocking them over. Or a little kid being blown around by the strong winds. And Paul's picture here is that the false doctrines of the world do that to us because we are not yet mature we are to grow up we are to mature be strengthened be encouraged built up as the body of christ so that we are not deceived by these things that we stand firm against the attacks of the devil the world and our sinful flesh and you've got human cunning there but you've also got craftiness remember the devil was more crafty than any other the serpent was more crafty than any other from genesis chapter 3. so speak the truth in love so we are called to speak truly and we are called to speak the truth for the sake of loving one another and this will help us to grow up to be like Christ in every way that is a goal that we will not achieve the side of paradise but that doesn't mean we don't aim for it it doesn't mean we don't strive for it knowing that Christ will provide for us and knowing that he will forgive us where we fall short. So the whole body is joined together and held together. Think of your body, your physical body, and how it works and how all the pieces go together. And The body of Christ, the church, is that way also. When it works properly, the body grows and builds up itself. That love word here is the same agape word we saw back in chapter 3, verse 17, the agape love of God in which we are rooted and established and grounded in this life. So we are now built up in this love. We are nourished by it as the, the roots drink from the love of God and provide that, that benefit to us as his people. This brings us to our gospel text, John chapter 6, verses 22 to 35. I'm going to do it in two parts today. Verse 22 through 24 first. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberius came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus on the next day. So what's going on here and, and actually taking a step backwards, why are we in John all of a sudden? We've been in Mark for the last seven eight weeks I can count. Yeah, the last eight weeks in a row, and now all of a sudden we're in John. So what's going on? Well, on the next day, here, verse 22, makes us look backwards and see what we've just missed. So John has just given the account of the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking on water. And this is a follow-up to that. Whereas in Mark, we have just talked about those other events. And so now we're... We're covering a bit of ground that we wouldn't get for Mark with this. Now, the other thing, the other factor here to keep in mind is, okay, why are we plugging in John anyway? And most of that is because Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. So year A of the lectionary, the three-year system, is Matthew. Year B, which is what we're in now, is Mark. And then year C is Luke. But because Mark is the shortest, again... Um, he gets kind of interspliced with some of John's gospel, and this is one of those weeks. Actually, the next three weeks are. We're going to be picking up on John chapter 6 three weeks in a row, um, 22 to 35 this week, 35 to 51 next week, and then 51 to 69 on the weekend after that. And then we'll bounce back over to Mark, and we'll be in Mark for a couple of months in a row. So this is, again, on the next day, after Jesus has fed the 5,000 and walked on the water, here's what John reports happened. The crowds that had been there for that feeding noticed that there had only been one boat. And Jesus didn't get in that boat, only the disciples did. And so now they want to know where Jesus went so that they can follow him there. And you might be able to already sense the reason why, right? Jesus just fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, with nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish. That's a pretty neat trick. If they follow Jesus, maybe he'll do it again. Maybe he can be a bread king. I don't want to get terribly far ahead of ourselves here, as we'll need to leave some things we can talk about in future weeks too, but... The motivation here is not the greatest. They're not seeking after Jesus because he's the son of God who's come to save them. They're seeking after Jesus because he can make their life in this world better now. And that's not what he's come to do. So they're going to bump heads here in just a bit. But before they go, verse 23, we learn others came to join them. From Tiberius. Tiberius, in this case, is not the name of a person, but the name of a place. Tiberius is a city on the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So they have caught up. Um, they've come to where Jesus had fed these these many peoples, and they're going to travel together now. At this point, now that city, Tiberius, is one that was built probably 10, 15 years before by King Herod and dedicated to the Roman emperor Tiberius, thus the name and the connection. Now, where had these men been fed? Where did the feeding of the 5,000 take place? Matthew, Mark, and John do not indicate that for us. They don't specify where they had gone. Luke 9 mentions in that proximity the idea of Bethsaida, and then that they had maybe perhaps gone out into wilderness, the countryside around Bethsaida. We do have Mark saying that they went, went into the boats back towards Bethsaida after the account. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly where, but that gives you a rough idea. Bethsaida being off to the basically roughly the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So these crowds chasing after Jesus, got into their boats, and they went to Capernaum. Capernaum is still on the north side, maybe north-northwest from the sea, so not a far trip on the boat for these to make. We're going to go ahead and read verses 25 through the end of the text. Verse 35 is a paragraph unto itself, um, the way the text is broken up for us this weekend, but we'll take it together. When they found him on the other side of the sea, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So that's the end of our text. And again, we're going to pick up right there where we just stopped again next week. We actually double up on verse 35. And then the week after that, we double up on verse 51. So we'll get those twice. So here we have the conversation. They found Jesus. And they ask him when he got to where he was, because they're confused, right? They didn't see him go. They're not sure how he got there. They know he didn't take a boat because there were no boats for him to take. And he tells them the truth, right? Truly, truly. He says it plainly. They're not actually looking for Jesus. They're not looking for who he is or what he's come to do. They're there because of the bread miracle. And they're hoping he's going to do it again. And so Jesus rebukes them. Softly, it seems, in the text, but still, nonetheless, do not work for the food that perishes. They have traveled all this way for food that doesn't endure. Don't work for that, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. That would be Jesus, as he's about to describe to them, that Jesus is the food that endures. The Son of Man will give it to you. Jesus is going to give himself to us. And you can already see where this might be going, right? Where does Jesus give us himself that endures to eternal life? There are many Christians who believe that John 6 is talking about the Lord's Supper. There are many Christians who argue that it isn't. I'm in favor of it as being about the lord's supper or at least in part that's part of our conversation that we want to have in regards to john six jesus gives himself to us take eat this is my body take drink this is my blood on him god the father has set his seal that's a really bold statement He has the stamp of God's approval. We might talk about this maybe perhaps as his anointing as being what he's referring to here. You could talk about his baptism. Those are a couple of possibilities for when God sealed him. So then they ask what the works of God are. How do we do these works of God? And Jesus says that there is only one. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's not what you normally hear, right? The work of God that we would keep the commandments, that we would do do good works, all those kinds of things. Here Jesus is describing it for us. What is the work of God? Believe. Believe in the one whom God sent. Believe in the Son. Believe in the gifts, receive the gifts through faith. Verse 30, they seem as clueless as the Israelites coming out of the Exodus. The Israelites had seen all the miracles of God that he did in the course of the last few months or the last year or whatever it was, and they still don't believe. And they still demand more. And now these guys, they have literally watched Jesus perform that miracle of feeding the 5,000 plus people. And they want him to do another sign. Like, was that first one not enough? What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Then they're going to reference our Old Testament reading. Our Father, ate the man in the wilderness... They cite from Nehemiah chapter 9, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're connecting this together. That This sign of bread has been given them before. That God has done this, that Moses had done this for them. Jesus points out to them that the bread that came did not come from Moses. But the bread that came to them came from the Father. That it is God the Father who cared for them. It is God the Father who fed them in the wilderness That, well, those 40 years. But now Jesus shifts it, right? Verse 53, 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there's a, you know, pause. There is your argument for this is not about the Lord's Supper. Like, probably focus on that particular verse as the strongest verse. Jesus is the bread of life. One of the John statements. Coming right up. One of those I am statements. So Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. And we know he has done so by his death on the cross and his resurrection, that the tomb was empty on the third day. But he'd have to stop pretty immediately there to not see it expand beyond that, or at least potentially expand beyond that. Because they respond and they say, Sir, give us this bread always. Well, of course, right? Um, they want the bread always they want more best construction would look at this much like the account a couple of chapters prior in john chapter 4 about the woman at the well who when jesus tells her about the living water that he can give her that would well up inside of her until everlasting life she said sir give me this water give me this water give us this bread It is hard to not connect this to the sacraments, right? Water, baptism, bread, together with wine, as the Lord's Supper. They want this bread always. And guess what? Guess what we have, church? We have that bread always. Both in the sacramental sense and in the sense of just having Jesus, the body of Christ, together, always. Right? He promised, Matthew 28, I'm with you always to the end of the age but we have that bread. Some Christians even have that bread daily in their congregations as they gather as the people of God. All right, so here we have verse 35, one of those great I am statements. I am. uh, This comes from the Exodus 3 account as we have God explaining to Moses who he is. He says, I am who I am. Ehweh Asher Ehweh. I am who I am. So Ehweh, I am, is the name that God calls himself. Then he tells Moses to say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one who sent me to you. So Yahweh is Hebrew for he is. God says I am, we respond he is. That's the divine name. And so God gives his divine name, I am, and we very clearly see in the context of John's letter that as Jesus makes these I am statements, he really aggravates the Pharisees. They want to charge him with blasphemy because they get it. Jesus isn't speaking metaphors. Jesus is claiming to be God. They see it, and they want to kill him for it. If he was just making these crazy metaphors that don't make any sense, they wouldn't have wanted to put him to death but there's something bigger going on. So Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that God the Father sends down from heaven to give life to the world. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst, never thirst. So again, the Lord's Supper and baptism, connections with John six and John four, they're certainly there. We can certainly talk about them as such the key here is, Jesus is the bread of life. He gives himself to us that we may live and we get to live with him forevermore. A wonderful gift that that is. So again, next week we're going to start with this verse 35, with the I am the bread of life statement that Jesus makes, and we'll see how that conversation continues. (laughs)